You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful you guys would worship with us this morning. There's a lot of things you could be doing, a lot of cold places you could be enjoying this warm summer day, but I'm grateful you're here with us. I get the privilege of continuing our series in Summer in the Psalms, looking at the Word of God, particularly the Psalms, uh, wrestling with what does it mean to, to be a human, to live in this world, to experience the things that we experience. And uh, simply as we look at this, we're going to look at what the saints of old have experienced and walked through and how they clung tightly to God in their times of joy and sorrow. This week in particular, I've been confronted by just the realities of joy and sorrow in our midst. As we look at those in our church who are going through health crises, who are dealing with the loss of loved ones, it really feels like we're riding a pendulum of joy and sorrow, joy and sorrow. And it just feels like that's just this constant experience in life. Maybe you felt that way too. Maybe you felt that, that pendulum swing of things are great, and now they're not. Things are good, and now they're not. Is that how the world's supposed to work? Is that how we're supposed to live and experience life? What does the Word of God have to say about that? How is it that we're to respond even to those moments of crisis? I think it's God's providence, His his faithfulness, His his perfect plan that we've come to Psalm 30 on this day as we're just in the middle of a season of looking at these things of joy and sorrow. You see, David writes in this psalm about the joy and sorrows of life. He writes about the God who is faithful to be with his people, a God who is faithful to walk with him every step of the way. You see, in this psalm, David writes about a God who is faithful to walk with him, who is with him in his times of joy and times of sorrow. And so as we look at the Word of God today, I believe that we're going to find answers to how we're to live in the midst of joy and sorrow. I believe we're going to find answers on how we're to respond to joy and sorrow in our lives. Before we jump into the passage, I want to take a moment and simply pray for our hearts as we prepare to receive God's Word, and then we'll jump into the text with our first point. If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are grateful for you. In the midst of all that we're experiencing, all the things that are going on in our lives and in our world, you're a God who is faithful to be with his people. You're a God who is faithful to walk step by step with his children to love us, to care for us, to ensure that we have someone with us in the highest of highs or the lowest of lows. Lord, I'm grateful for your ever-present love and affection for us. Lord, I speak from personal experience, Lord, that you have sustained me in the darkest of days and in the brightest of times. That's the same cry that I know many in this room would echo, Lord. Lord, we are grateful for your grace and mercy We pray that today as we study the scriptures, we look at Psalm 30, that you would reveal your truth to us, that you would allow us to see how it is we are to live in light of your word. Father, we are thankful for your work in this world, and we pray that you would bless us with your presence and with revealing of the truth of the scriptures today. Lord, thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, I want you to jot down your first note, and that's going to be that our God is with us in the light. Our God is with us in the light. If you look at Psalm 30, the text will be on the screen, or you can flip to it. Beginning with verse 1, I want you to look at these words. David writes, 
I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry in the night, but joy comes with the morning. As we enter into this passage... We see David is writing a psalm that's going to be used in the dedication of the temple. See, David is writing this song, and this this song he's writing is going to be used at the dedication service, but it's interesting that David's writing this because David is not going to be around when the temple is dedicated. David's aware of this. God has already told him that he's going to prepare the way for Solomon to build the temple. Solomon's the one who's going to build the temple and to be the one who officiates the dedication. Yet David is writing this psalm, knowing that he will die before God will fulfill his promises. I think David is trying to leave some type of legacy for his people. He wants them to see something in this life, that God is with them every step of the way. You see, he's drawing the people together to worship. He understands this truth. David knows the history of his people. He knows the story of the people of Israel. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you look back at the story of the Israelites and you see the story that they are God's chosen people. They were held captive in slavery against their will and then they were freed from slavery. They are God's chosen people who were led from slavery into the promised land. They're God's chosen people who have been led to victory and prosperity in this promised land. David sits at the end of the line in this journey from looking back of the generations that have passed and he can look back at his heritage and go, God has been faithful to his people. David doesn't want them to forget this. David, for all his mistakes, for all his failures, he is a man who is after God's own heart. He's a man who desires for people around him to worship God. He's reminding the Israelites, and frankly, he's reminding us, as you and I, about God's presence with his people. You see, David's writing this psalm in a time of joy and of peace. We know as we study the history of the Bible that in this time, as David's preparing for the temple and is gathering resources and supplies, this is a time of prosperity and peace for Israel. They're winning every battle they get into. They have everything they need. They simply are working in the will of God and he is blessing them. And times are good. But David is fully aware of this reality that life is like a series of hills. It's up and down, up and down, up and down. In the same way, we experience joy and sorrow, joy and sorrow, joy and sorrow. David understands those realities. He's experienced these very things himself. And from the story of his life, he wants the people of Israel, he wants you and I, as being a part of God's chosen people, to look at his life, to understand this truth that God is with 
his people. As we look at this very passage, we see God, that David is beginning with this proclamation of God. He's worshiping God because in verse 1, what happens? God did not abandon him to his enemies. If you look back at the story of David's life, it's filled with conflict. I mean, there is conflict after conflict. You could write an action movie off of the story of his life. Sometimes the conflict he experiences is because David's a knucklehead. I mean, let's just call balls and strikes, right? David doesn't make the best choices sometimes. But it's filled with conflict. Yet, through it all, through every difficult moment, David proclaims that God has been with him. David knows this deep truth that God has been faithful through his entire life, even when David has been faithless. Even when David has made mistakes like betting Bathsheba, even when David has made mistakes about lying and cheating and stealing, even when he has coveted things that were not his, God has been faithful to him. He continues on in verse 2, and he's worshiping God because God has heard his cry in this life and he has healed him. We don't really know what David is referencing, this healing that he's experienced. Maybe it's some type of physical ailment, some battle wound perhaps. Maybe he's dealing with some mental health crisis, some, some internal turmoil, some difficulty, whatever it might be. David says, I have been healed, and the one who has offered this healing to me is God. He knows that God has cared for him when he's hurting. See, David's worshiping God because he owes his life and his eternity to God. God has been faithful to David over all these years. These many years of his life, David knows that he would be dead on a battlefield somewhere if it wasn't for God's provision. David knows, in light of this, that this life simply isn't the end of the story. That's that reference to Sheol here, this rescue from the pit. David knows that if he believes what some of his dear brothers believe, that when this life is done, you just go rest in a pit of tor torment and nothingness. And David recognizes that he knows that God has rescued him from this pit. You see, he recognizes, he is counting on this future Messiah whose name is Jesus. This Messiah, he only knows from the prophecies of God. He doesn't know his name. He doesn't know anything but this truth that this Messiah is going to come to make good on all the promises of God. He rests in this truth knowing that he doesn't quite know how this story ends, but he knows that God has promised him that it will end with him dwelling with him for all eternity. And David says, that's good enough for me. That is good enough for me because I know that you're a God who makes promises that he will keep. Because of these things, David desires for the people of God to know that the Lord is good and that he is near us. This is what he writes here in verses 4 and 5. He's Offering these words to the congregation, to the people of Israel, to the people of God. He wants us to praise God for his holy works. As we look at this moment of present joy of David saying, look at what the Lord has done in my life. Look what he's done in your life, in the life of the gathered church. 
We're to worship God because he's brought us through the sorrow into the light. Verse 5 is a direct call to this joy, this hope, this peace that David has in light of difficult days. He's telling us that God is not only full of favor, but he is also gracious to us. He has this reference to God's anger, and he says that his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. So often we think of God, and we think of God as this God who's got a pointing finger pointing down at us. You know better. You should do differently. You should not be this way. And that's just not the God of the Bible. Yes, he's a God who gets righteously angry, but here's the reality. David is showing us that these parts of God, his grace and his anger, they're not equal. He's saying that sometimes he is righteously angry about our sins and about our actions. But he's not a God who's pointing an angry finger down from heaven. He's a God who's got an open-armed embrace for his children, whether we are succeeding or failing in life. He is a God who loves and cares for his people. This is what David wants his people to see. This is what David wants us to see. That this anger that God has at our sin sometimes, this ultimately leads to favor for us. You see, weeping doesn't have the last word for those who are in Christ, but joy is the last final cry that we hear. See, David is writing these words for his people, for us, because he wants us to understand something. So often in our lives, we're in times of joy, of prosperity, of peace. When things are good, right? When things are good, we say that we have God's favor and blessing. We say that because things are good, God is pleased with us. Yet, what are we telling ourselves when things get difficult? Woe is me, God is angry with me. Woe is me, I have all the prosperity is taken away. God must want to show me something. David understands this truth. His joy in this life is not dependent upon God's favor or blessing. His peace and his comfort, that doesn't rest in if God is satisfied with him. No, it rests, it's dependent upon this truth. It's dependent upon God himself, his very presence. David understands that God may be displeased with him and may be trying to show him something, yet God is not going to abandon him and leave him alone. God is not going to forsake him. Whether times are good or whether times are difficult, who is with him? It is God himself. David recognizes that if God is with him, if God is for him, then he is okay. Things don't have to go his way. Because for David, he recognizes that he will find joy in God himself because he's anchored his life, his hope, his satisfaction to God. There's no greater foundation, there's no greater source, no greater reason for stability, hope, and joy in this life than God himself. See, David understands that truth. He's proclaiming that to you and I and here in this psalm, he gets a little biographical for us. You see, he believes in this so much that he wants to show us a time where he has slipped into despair and difficulty, 
where he has had things stripped away from him. And he wants us to see that in those moments, God was not only with him, but David was satisfied because God was with him. So we look to the next section, and if you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down, that our God is with us in the darkness. Look with me at verses 6 through 10. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. To the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down into the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. David is giving us what can only be described as a flashback here. He's telling us about a crisis that he has faced and how God worked through this dark time in his life. In the beginning, things are going very well in this flashback. Things are going well for David. He points to this in verse 6, and he's prosperous. Things are going so well that he begins to proclaim, whether it's to himself or to others, that he will never be moved. You'll notice his words there. He says, I shall never be moved. He's not saying, God will sustain me. He's not saying, the Lord has been generous. He's saying, I have done this. I have been the one who has established me upon this mountain. You see, prosperity brought his pride out for all to see. It's interesting, David's writing these words. He's being very biographical, very open and honest. You know, he could make himself look a little better in this story, right? I think we'd all understand that yet he's not pulling any punches. He's simply saying, I was prideful and arrogant. I had the audacity to stand before God and say, I did it. I made it happen. You see, David came to think that his strength showed up, that his strength showed that he was strong, this was his own doing, that he couldn't be moved, that he would succeed. Yet in this, he forgot a very crucial truth in his life. This crucial truth is that it was God who made him strong like a mountain. And that God can ultimately make the mountains crumble at his word for our good. You see in the following verses, we see that God begins to humble David. And David begins to experience what we would describe as despair or even hopelessness. As he loses his prosperity, as he loses the things that he thinks bring him joy and satisfaction, he begins to spiral out of control. Even as we look at this, I just simply want to offer some encouragement just as we think through this moment. If you're in a day of flourishing, a joy, of prosperity, of things are good for you. Learn from David's example and take a step back and humble yourself before the Lord. Thank Him for your peace and your prosperity. Thank Him for your joy. Don't sit there as David did and arrogantly think, I did this, I have made a way, I have done it. Because the Lord did it. But I would also say if you're in a season of 
despair, of darkness, of sorrow. I want to encourage you to call out to God, trusting that He's got an eternal purpose for this moment. That our sorrows, our nights of darkness, our difficulties, they're intended to do something in our lives. Our God's not a God who enjoys suffering. Nowhere do we see that in the Scriptures. But our God is a God who wants us to learn and to grow and to be more like Him. And sometimes when we hit those moments of sorrow, of difficulty, of despair, we have to grow and learn to rest in who God is and what He's doing. As we look at this section, things are pretty bad for David. We don't really know what is driving him to despair, what's happening in this moment, but David tells us that he thinks that he is near death. Verses 8 through 10 are him crying out to God, saying, Lord, Lord, have you forgotten me? Lord, how long will I wait in despair and sorrow? Lord, are you still there because I can't feel your presence? Things are so bad, he starts trying to bargain with God. Verse 9 is essentially a paraphrase. He's saying, God, what good is it to you if I die? Right, Lord, if I die, who's going to praise you? I can't praise you if I lose my body, if I lose my mouth and my tongue. If I become dust, will the dust praise you? Right, Lord, is there anything here that's good for you? Is there anything here that's good for me? David is appealing to God's very nature in seeking rescue. He's saying, God, you made the world. Why? For your glory and you desire to be praised. So rescue me. Lord, rescue me so I can continue to praise you. So I can continue to spread your glory. As an aside, this is a really great way to pray. As you're praying, David's reasoning with God based on God's character and on God's glory. He's laying out who God is before him and saying, Lord, if you want to continue to be that kind of God, if you want me to continue to offer you praise and glory, you, you got to do something here, right? David's desperate in this moment. I think we can see that in verse 10 because he essentially cuts right to the heart of what he's looking for here. In verse 10, he goes straight to it. He just wants out of this place of difficulty and despair. I mean, look at his words. He simply says, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. All he wants is to get out of Dodge. He just wants mercy in any way at this moment. He just wants rescue. Now we know, as we look at this moment, that David was indeed rescued that he's been rescued and he's been placed out of this pit of despair. Now, rather than just move on, though, David, he keeps his word. He keeps his word by proclaiming God's worthiness to the world. You see, that leads us to our last point in our final verses today, that God is worthy of praise. God is worthy of praise. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. 
that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. David's showing us a, a few things here that we need to remember. First, we have to recognize that sorrow and joy, these are not equal things of God. These are not equals for Him. You see, in God, we tend to think of joy and sorrow as two sides of the same coin, right? Life is roughly split up between those two, that we only experience joy or sorrow. And it's maybe in your life, maybe you feel like it's half and half. Maybe you feel like one is outweighing the other. But here's what we recognize. As we look at this section, David is trying to show us that the point of sorrows is to ultimately lead us into joy. The point of sorrows and mourning is to bring a greater awareness and embrace of the joyous moments. You see, David is showing us the simple truth that life is not split 50-50 between joy and sorrow. Our God is a God of joys who takes our sorrow and turns it into moments of joy and happiness. I mean, look at these verses. He simply says that you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosened my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. He's saying, you, God, have taken my sorrow and despair, and you've turned it into something good. Not only does my sorrow and despair have meaning because of this, but my sorrow and despair has been replaced, and I now have joy in you. See, God takes our mourning, and he turns it into dancing. You see, this is the final word that we experience in the end, God's going to remove our sackcloth and he's going to clothe us with joy. Joy is always going to come in the morning because that's who God is. You see, just as David has found, the sun is going to rise in the morning. Rescue is going to come. Relief will be found. Joy will be present once again no matter our present troubles or distress, if we are of God. This is the hope that we have. We don't live a life in this constant battle of hoping to find joy and peace for a few fleeting moments. No, we have a joy and a peace that is eternal. We have a hope that is not of this world, but is anchored in who God is and what He has done. We rest in this truth that though times may be difficult, though times may be hard, at the end of the day, this is the beauty of the gospel. We get God. The story is written. The game is rigged. So that if we are in Christ, what do we receive at the end of it? Joy. We look forward to that day when sin is no more, when things have been made right. We rest in this confidence that one day things will be as they are supposed to be. The earth will be restored. Sin will be no more. We'll be in perfect heavenly bodies. There'll be no more pain, no more sorrow. Things will be right, not just for one day, not just for one fleeting moment, but for eternity. 
This is the hope we have, that it is anchored in a time that is to come, and that time to come is reaching out into our present life, giving us hope and encouragement. You see, David understands that our joy is rooted in God, in His character, in His nature, in His eternal presence. He recognizes this truth. David's just a man. I mean, I, I don't know if you know, know this, but he's just an ordinary guy. He's a messed up guy who's done some great things, who's done a lot of terrible things, and God still loves him. He's an ordinary guy. He's not anyone incredibly special. I say that because David really couldn't see that far ahead in his life. Like he knew he would live, he would gather some things for the temple, he'd be a good king, he'd make some mistakes, and the Lord would be faithful to him. You see, he didn't know for certain the temple would be built. He didn't know that Solomon would come through. He didn't know that this Messiah was going to come in the form of Jesus. He knew there was going to be Messiah, but he just didn't know anything else. He just simply didn't know that the Messiah would change things so radically. You see, David couldn't see the cross and the resurrection like we can. See, that cross, that resurrection, see, that moment, that assures us that joy, that God will ultimately win. Simply look at the meaning, the significance of the crucifixion, the cross and the resurrection. That moment, Jesus won. I just want you to reflect on this truth that joy has come because Jesus has paid the debt of our sin and shame. That sin no longer has to have a hold upon us. That we are no longer condemned by our sin and shame. That we have been rescued. That if you're here and you're saying, I would like to be rescued. I want to experience hope. That there is indeed good news for you and I. That there is a way forward. And it's through Jesus. This is why we proclaim the good news on Good Friday. We rejoice that the day is good. And it seems odd to say that about a day where our Savior was crucified, dead, and buried. Yet we proclaim it is good because that dark moment brought joy to bear. That sorrow was used to transform our mourning into dancing. To exchange our sackcloth for clothes of joy. To take these sinful rags and exchange it with a robe of righteousness. This is good news. Just as Jesus conquered the grave, we too will conquer the grave if we are in Christ Jesus. This is why we have hope and certainty. This is why we have joy in our times of sorrow. Because we trust in this truth that our God still reigns on high. He is seated on the throne and Jesus is at his right hand interceding on our behalf so that we might have access to the Father at all times. As if that's not enough, the final member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, dwells in the hearts and minds of those that are in Christ. God is literally with us in this temple guiding us, directing us, empowering us to fulfill His will on this earth. David's response to all of this is to sing and dance. David's response to this in verse 12 is to 
use this language, my glory, oh my glory, may sing your praise and not be silent. This language in the Hebrew, my glory, when used in this combination of words, it has a colloquial meaning. It really means my whole body, my whole being. David says, my whole body is yours. Everything I've got to offer is yours, Lord. And I'm going to use every bit of it to bring honor and praise to your name. I'm going to sing. I'm going to dance. I'm going to proclaim your goodness to the nations because you have been good to me. David is so moved that he wants his whole body, his whole life. He wants his very legacy to be of a broken man who was found to be a child of God. Of a broken man who was after God's own heart. Of a man that even when he was faithless, God was faithful to him. This is the legacy that David has before us. This is the beautiful truth that we find in the gospel of Jesus. And today I would just simply ask you if perhaps you've been transformed by this hope that we have in Jesus. If your whole body has been transformed by the power of the gospel, would you sing and I dare say perhaps even dance a bit to rejoice and show the goodness of God? Would you sing with the gathered saints to rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus, proclaiming our need, our desire for God to be not only present in our lives, but working in our lives? Perhaps you're here and you haven't experienced this joy, this satisfaction that comes from Jesus. I would simply say as you experience the joys and sorrows in life, before I found Jesus as a college students, I recognize that the joys were too brief and the sorrows were so long. And since then, the beautiful message of the gospel is that sorrows are short, joys might be fleeting as well, but I have a hope and a certainty that things will work out. I have a hope and certainty that my hope, my joy, my satisfaction in this life does not rest in experiencing joys and sorrows, but it rests in Jesus. If you're looking for hope and certainty in this life, it comes not through possessions, it not, comes not through money, it comes not through anything on this earth, but it comes from heaven reaching down to us in the form of a man named Jesus. And so perhaps if you're here and you're longing for hope and certainty, today would be the day to cry out to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. In the next few moments, our worship team is going to come forward and they're going to lead us on one final song. And we're going to have an opportunity to, as David says, express our whole being in song and dance, rejoicing in His goodness. If you're here and you haven't perhaps looked to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've not cried out to Him, this is a moment to do so. I'll pray for us and our band's going to lead us in worship. And if after this time, if you want to speak to someone about what the Lord is doing in your life, I'll be right here. I would love to hear what God is doing in your life and how He is transforming you to be more like Him. If I may, could I pray for you as we prepare our hearts to worship yet again in song? Would you bow your heads with me?
Father, we are thankful for you. We're grateful for this beautiful truth that despite joys and sorrows and all the things that we experience in this world, you're a God who is faithful to be with his people. I'm grateful for this truth, Lord, that no matter the joys and sorrows we experience in this life, we have a hope and certainty that comes from you. Lord, this hope and certainty is not anchored in things of this world, but it is anchored in the heavenly places. It will not perish. It will not be defiled. It will not pass away, Lord. We rest in this truth that the hope and certainty we have is founded in the very nature and character of our God. The same God who would send His Son to bear the weight of our sin and shame. The same God who would send His Son to be a sacrifice that we could not be. Jesus was perfect, sinless. He lived the very life that we were supposed to live but could not. And He, this innocent man, bore the weight of our sin and shame upon the cross so that we might have life eternal and forgiveness of sins if we trust in our King. So Lord, we come to you today asking for you to be revealed to us. We ask for you to be the God who is working in our hearts and minds. We ask for you to reveal the truth of who you are to us. Lord, lead us to worship in this time, to rejoice in your goodness and your grace, to sing as David proclaims completely, totally with our whole body, showing the world the glory of a resurrected Savior. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to your people for all generations. We pray these things in your name. Amen.